G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. <clears throat> We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast. We don't ask for much in return. They'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast or whatever platform you listen to this podcast on and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Any other reviews, you can leave that to uh, other other uh, other podcasts. Um, but we could really appreciate a bit of your time to uh, to go and leave us a review. Sorry about the uh, the bit of the break in uh, in podcast and just had a new addition to the podcast family so uh, so been busy doing uh, slightly other things for the last sort of couple of weeks Anyway, um, we've finally managed to track down Brian, which is a relief to all of us. Um, so uh, to joining um, Brian in the, in the studio um, and myself is uh, Sarah Stewart. So thank you very much, Sarah, for, uh, um, for taking your time. Hopefully take two would be, uh, would be as good as take one. So thank you for joining us in the yeah, studio. Happy to be here. Um, and, uh, and Sarah, you're, you, you've, you, just so people know if they're going to you know, send a thing into the RBC, that you're kind of in between uh, working in the internal medicine department but also oncology and... Uh, uh, stemming from your your love of both, one yeah. one might one might presume. Yeah, I'm um, board certified in small animal internal medicine, and so we had, um, that's what my residency training was predominantly in. But uh, you know, there's a lot of crossover between internal medicine and oncology, uh, and I've always really enjoyed working up and then sort of being able to follow up those cases. So right now, the uh, combination opportunity at the RVC is really uh, you know proving quite fulfilling in that sense. Sounds pretty good, like a, a bit of the best of both worlds. So I wonder whether you'd sort of branch into neurology and cardiology as well. Or you <laughs> Those ones I'm much less comfortable okay. with. So. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> I mean, you could get, get, get them all. Um, so uh, so but we're, we're not going to talk about anything oncological. We're going to talk about uh, uh, collapsing trachea. So I suppose that sort of, uh, we, we've had a couple of interactions uh, about a couple of cases over the, over the last sort of year, and, and I suppose that's what made me think that you've got a, a, a great approach to, to this. I thought maybe we could, uh, could have a chat about. So, um, so when we're talking about... Uh, uh, um, collapsing trachea. Is there, is there any other particular name that uh, attributes what we're what we're talking about? Or um, you know, I think collapsing trachea, as sort of the colloquial term, you know, really covers it. We're basically dealing with a progressive collapse of the cartilaginous rings. Um, the actual process that's going on is that we're getting uh, chondromalacia or sort of weakening uh, of the sort of rigid structure of uh, the cartilage over time. Um, so we start to see these patients that have reduced uh, glycosaminoglycans and reduced chondroitin. Uh, and then as that fatigues over time, um, we see the rings weakening. And then unfortunately, this is a disease where uh, cough begets more inflammation, which causes more collapse, uh, which causes more cough. And we sort of start this vicious cycle, which if we can't intervene, uh, we have patients that are coming in needing salvage procedures. So when we talk about collapsing trachea, though, is it, is it just like the trachea or is there other airways that are involved as well? So, so um, most of these patients actually do have some degree of other concurrent airway disease. Um, so about up to 85% of them will have some bronchomalacia, where we actually get some collapse of the lobar and smaller tertiary bronchi. Uh, that can happen sort of as a this same underlying degenerative change that we see with tracheal collapse, but also due to some other primary airway diseases like chronic bronchitis. So it's really important when you're seeing these cases to do a full respiratory workup so that we can identify any of these other concurrent conditions and treat them as well, um, because the more sort of different angles at which we can come at the medical management, the better chance we have of getting those symptoms under control. And so when you talk about a respiratory workup, what what what, what do you what do you encompass that? Is that just radiographs? We talk about radiographs and a BAL or, or what? What what constitutes? And I know coming from different places, whether you're in general practice or you've got a few more uh, um, 
you know uh, tools or, or toys available what 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 yeah. constitutes a... it's a great question and i think um where it all starts as with most things in medicine is with the physical exam so the direction that your workup is going to go um largely depends on if we feel like we've got some of those concurrent issues so if we have a heart murmur um if i can hear uh inspiratory or expiratory crackles as well as that classic goose honking cough um you know, if, if we've got any other signs of significant systemic illness, maybe the dog looks cushing away and is quite overweight and carrying that excess body fat is potentially exacerbating things. Um, but I'd say our, our general workup for these guys, you know, we, we always want to get some sort of form of thoracic imaging um, guided by our physical exam. So in general practice, uh, hopefully everyone can get our basic three-view thoracic radiographs. The key when we're looking for tracheal collapse, though, is to remember that this is a dynamic disease, so it's not always necessarily going to be present on an x-ray, which is just that single image in time. So uh, in general practice, to try to maximize your chances of finding it, we want to try to get inspiratory and expiratory films, um, because again, we're going to have collapse of the intrathoracic trachea um, when we're having expiration. So if we're only getting inspiratory um, we'll see potentially the cervical trachea collapsing, but not those others and maybe not those lower airways. Um, in a referral setting, um, we'll usually always ideally start with thoracic radiographs so that we can get a good look at those lower airways, check for things like concurrent pneumonia, which can be quite common in these patients when they're coming in in a crisis, um, but then ideally follow that up with fluoroscopy, which is our real-time x-ray. So what we can do is just get these patients uh, lying on the, the table in right lateral recumbency, palpate the trachea, and try to induce a cough, um, and then image the entire airway and really see dynamically which areas are collapsing. Yeah, excellent. Um, and uh, and so, would you always do like a like a BAL as as well, or so? The way the gold standard for diagnosing tracheal collapse is uh, bronchoscopy. So um, we have a grading system from one through four. Uh, so grade one would be you've got less than 25% collapse. Grade two, 25 to 50. Grade three, 50 to 75. Um, and then grade four, we've got basically you know 100% collapse. Um, but the challenge with a lot of these patients, especially if they're somewhat unstable, is that if we uh, anesthetize them um, and sort of secure their airway and give them 100% oxygen to breathe, uh, we may have great difficulty recovering them from that. So generally, we don't move to doing things like um, sort of BAL and bronchoscopy unless we feel this patient has high suspicion of concurrent lower airway disease like chronic bronchitis that we need to treat, or we've got a patient that's really in a crisis, we're going to be moving towards something like placing a tracheal stent um, and in that time, um, we're always going to sample the airways uh, so that we can ensure that we don't have a bacterial infection at the time of implant placement. So just practically when you've actually done bronchoscopy on, on sort of these patients, is it kind of like the textbook? Do they, do they, can you, do you, can you see that 25, 50%, 75% or is it quite variable on where you look and, and uh, I suppose the size, the scope do you have? And Yeah, nothing is unfortunately as, as pretty as it is in the textbooks. So um, I would say a lot of it you know, kind of depends on the different segment of the airways you're in, sometimes the depth of anesthesia. So we try to make multiple assessments and kind of multiple passes through if the patient is stable. Unfortunately, with a lot of our small breed dogs, um, you know, they're too small for us to be able to fit both the scope and an endotracheal tube into the airway. Um, you know, if we've got a patient that's above 10 kilograms, we can, uh, you know, have a scope that's small enough to sort of run down the tube. So we're often dealing with a very limited time window. So the diagnostics for tracheal collapse, um, you know, while we always say the gold standard is scoping, a lot of times the gold standard itself can be a bit muddy and difficult to interpret. So in an ideal world, um, we actually use all three imaging modalities for patients, um, if, especially if we're going to be doing things like placing a tracheal stent. So you have your x-rays to look at your lower airways, um, check for any signs of pneumonia. You've got your fluoroscopy to really try to pin down where the dynamic collapse is happening and see if we have any other 
concurrent problems like um, nasopharyngeal uh, collapse, which we can see in our brachycephalics. Um, in severe cases, uh, we can see some patients having herniation of the cranial lung lobes uh, kind of out of the chest, and we can often see that happening on fluoroscopy, and then ultimately progressing to that lower airway workup with scoping and sampling for BAL for culture and cytology. As we said in, uh, in, our, in our first take of this, so the, the poster, poster children for uh, uh, for this type of disease tend to be like the, the, the small sort of terriers, like a Yorkshire terrier and, and sort of like pugs as well, and, mm-hmm. and that might com- complicate things for the sort of brachycephalics. Do you, do you, do you, or brachycephalic syndrome as well. Do, you, um, uh, do we see it in other breeds, like larger breed dogs as well? Or? Um, you know, we certainly do. You know, as we said in our uh, first take that has been lost to the airwaves, um, it, this is, for the most part, a small kind of terrier breed disease. So about one-third to two-thirds of the cases are Yorkshire Terriers, but Maltese, Mini Poodles, Pomeranians, Chihuahuas, Pugs um, are all going to be at risk. We do occasionally see tracheal collapse in um, sort of larger breed dogs as well, uh, but it's certainly not a common situation. So that would be more something where we might have it on our differential list lower down if we've got that classic goose honking cough, um, but we'd probably be in a, in a patient like that, be doing a full um, extensive respiratory workup to make sure we don't have any other kind of concurrent conditions. Is there, is there any uh, genetic component to this as far as we are aware? Um, certainly within the Yorkshire Terrier breed, uh, there is a genetic condition, uh, connection. Um, and we do see specifically within the Yorkshire Terriers, they are often affected at a younger age um, with more severe signs. And since we started placing stents in them, we've noted that um, there's a certain population of them that have almost a W-shaped cartilage, which uh, poses extra challenges when you're trying to put a stent in. Um, because for a stent to work, we need to have the sort of mesh contacting all areas of the circumference of the trachea equally. So um, we have to do a little bit of more creative out-of-the-box thinking trying to do that in these affected Yorkies. Wow. Okay. And so, and so I suppose as far as like a, like a medical management, it would be fair to say as well that maybe a certain percentage or, or obesity increases the morbidity associated with this disease so so is there like the the first line treatment that you would normally sort of suggest to people um depending on how sort of severe that the, the collapse is such as like weight loss and exercise and and then sort of uh, build up to, to other other things or do you or is, is there a stock um i suppose like medical approach to depending on the severity or or, or yeah, absolutely. It's a great question, and I think certainly nowadays, whenever we start talking about tracheal collapse, everyone wants to sort of hone in on the new sexy treatments like uh, tracheal stents. But you know, really, they are life saving. But we really reserve them as a salvage procedure for when we failed medical management. And we know that medical management will be effective in up to ninety percent of these dogs um, and control their signs for somewhere between twelve and eighteen months. So um, if you can detect these patients early enough before they're coming in to see you in the ICU in a, a full blown crisis um, and intervene we can really give a lot of them a good quality of life. Um, so for me, the, the most important focus for medical management talking to the owner is we need to break that vicious cycle of cough, causing collapse, causing inflammation. Because if we let that go on and on and on, eventually we'll start to get squamous, meta- squamous metaplasia of the lining of the trachea, which disrupts the mucociliary elevator. Um, and again, is going to predispose you to lots of other lower airway conditions that can then kind of lead to a precipitous crisis in your tracheal collapse. So um, when I'm talking to owners, it's really focusing on sort of a multimodal approach where we're going to hit things from 
multiple different aspects to try to get things under control. So uh, intervention one, if you are overweight, uh, we need to get you down to ideally a body condition score of four to five out of nine. We want to be able to see that waistline, see the ribs, um, and that can probably make one of the biggest differences. We've certainly had patients come in that were referred for a stent um, and, you know, been hospitalized for big crises, but they were, you know, sort of obese at an eight out of nine, and we got the weight off them, and they no longer, you know, were a, a potential stent candidate because their signs were well controlled. Um, so in addition to weight loss, um, we need to get on some sort of good antitussive. Uh, every sort of patient will probably respond slightly differently to the different combinations on the market. So I think this is one of those situations where we're really doing personalized, customized medicine, and you want the client to know if the first thing we prescribe doesn't seem to control the signs well, you know, let us know. We're going to try a slightly different approach. Um, and the key for the owners to know, a lot of them will have the impression that, oh, my dog coughed, so I'm going to give him a tablet. Um, and we don't want it to be a reactionary treatment. It should be a preventative treatment. So especially when we've first come in, we've made that diagnosis, we're in an active cycle of coughing. Um, we want to be medicating them very frequently and very aggressively to completely sort of shut down that cough reflex, give the time for inflammation to calm down. And then over time, you know, probably after a month or two of that more intensive medicating regimen, we can begin to back that down. Um, but to start, especially for significantly affected patients, we might be dosing every four to six hours. Um, the limiting factor with all of our antitussives, which again are usually in the opioid family, is going to be sedation. So um, it's really chatting with the owner and making sure you know they stay in good touch with you about finding a balance between not completely sedating the dog, but making sure that we're giving enough medication that we're not coughing. And so do you, do you, do you go first line for codeine or does it depend? Because actually I don't know the, the, the laws in, in, the, in the States about what's uh, yeah, available. I'll Unfortunately, a lot of the uh, drugs, both in the UK and in North America for tracheal collapse, are controlled substances. So probably um, the drug that I have personally had the most success with is hydrocodone. Um, but again, uh, now that that's a controlled drug, uh, you know, you have a lot of problems with prescribing large quantities. And certainly if you're sending, uh, you know, a Yorkie home that needs medication, uh, you know, two tablets every couple of hours, um, you're going to have a client that's coming back sort of every week. So um, there are some other options out there. Um, so Lamotil, which is our combination of phenoxylate and atropine, um, butorphanol, uh, and then just, you know, sort of codeine itself um, can all be different options. And there definitely seem to be a subset of dogs that do respond better to low modal. So if you do have a dog that, say, you started on hydrocodone or butorphanol, you're not getting much response, it's certainly worth switching and trying the other. Um, so in addition to antitussives and weight control, um, we do some other lifestyle interventions. So if we have clients that smoke, use a lot of air fresheners, incense, um, anything that's a potential irritant in the air, we want to eliminate those completely from the household. Um, if we're walking in a collar, throw the collar away, get them in a harness as anything that they're doing to sort of pull and put pressure on the trachea can induce another kind of cough cycle. Um, if we have a patient that uh, we think may have some concurrent lower airway disease, things like chronic bronchitis, um, we may do a course of sort of short anti-inflammatory steroids, um, maybe three to four weeks, starting at a mig per kg and then ramping down. Um, we'll, you know, work them up based on radiographs. If there's any evidence of concurrent pneumonia, um, we're going to treat with appropriate antimicrobials to eliminate that. Uh, and there is also, um, you know, sort of a, a moderate proponent of clinicians that will use bronchodilators as sort of a medication in our arsenal. Certainly, if I think a patient has concurrent lower airway disease and chronic bronchitis, um, helping to give a bronchodilator to relax those small airways, uh, make it a little bit easier to, to breathe and reduce that work can help those patients. Um, but it's always a balance because some of our small breed dogs may be a little more affected by the side effects um, of things like methylxanthines like theophylline. So it's really a balance. And again, going back to that idea of individualized, customized medicine for 
each of these patients. We want these clients to be, you know, keeping a diary. How often are we coughing? What sort of signs are we seeing? And if we add in a medication like tributylene or theophylline and we find that, oh, you know, now uh, Fluffy is running around uh, like crazy, seeming anxious, keeping the owners up at night, then we, we stop that medication and we try something else. I suppose sometimes as well the the little ter- terrier dogs kind of similar to to uh, uh, cats sometimes they're quite opinionated and maybe like throwing different concoctions and medications like someone's actually got to pill these guys and that can be a challenge in itself so I suppose you've got to weigh up like of, your, of all these medications like what do you think is gonna gonna have a, a, a the biggest impact because otherwise like um, because with these chronic conditions clients are just gonna you know this is not working drop the ball and then you're you know know, you're back to square one aren't you yeah and we often see that happen with sort of falling into that reactive pattern where um you know we start coughing we give a pill the cough goes away then the cough starts again we give it again and it's really educating them to kind of break out of that cycle but also at the same time if they're having problems medicating questioning and seeing why that is and how we can work around it and certainly some of these little dogs do a lot better with um the liquid syrup formulations which um you know sort of are available on the human market for children you just need to be, be careful that None of those contain xylitol, since, again, a lot of the human children cough syrups may have sweeteners that, of course, we don't want our dogs to get into. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So would you it, it's, would you always um, give sort of steroids, or would you err on the side that it really depends on what the radiographs look like? and Or, or, or how, do you, how do you kind of, like, gauge that? Yeah, I, I think it is... To a degree, a case-by-case basis. Um, I'd say probably in the majority of the cases um, that are you know, coming in in sort of a, a crisis-type situation, we will, again, to try to help to break that cycle of inflammation. Um, but if we know that on radiographs, you know, there's obvious evidence of kind of concurrent pneumonia, we're probably going to say, let's start with the antibiotics first and then sort of try to add steroids in at a later time. Um, one other thing that we will uh, occasionally play with is trying inhaled steroids, so things like um, fluticasone through the um, AeroDog spacer. Um, so again, that has the advantage of much less systemic absorption and the side effects that go along with that, but we're going to get good penetration down into those lower airways. So again, knowing how many of these dogs have concurrent chronic bronchitis and um, other sort of steroid-responsive conditions, helping to treat that additional cause of cough can can give them a lot of benefit. But if we have patients we're really worried about steroid side effects in we're maybe going to try the other interventions first before circling to that option absolutely and so we, we say you have like a, a period of time where you know that they're going to respond or 90 percent are going to respond to this sort of medical management do you do you try and sort of tease that out or is that like at a, at a set dose or do you actually find as you said you need to tailor this this type of medicine that it tends to work for say a couple of months and then you need to titrate it up is that is that kind of the the progression so you need to give drug anti-tufts is a more often or start to change them? Um, it, it depends a bit on the individual case. So um, again, if we can treat them medically and stop that cycle of inflammation and cough, um, a lot of these dogs that are not you know, really severely affected can go on and, and do well without any further intervention. And if we have a flare-up, say if there's a lot of uh, you know allergens in the environment that time of year, something that triggers more cough, they gain weight, um, we develop Cushing's disease and uh, you know have some body conformation changes, we might have to titrate our medications up. But usually I think the patients sort of fall into one of two groups. So the group that's going to respond well to medical management and hopefully once we get the acute crisis under control, we can taper off to sort of a maintenance situation. And then there are the patients that are going to progress and 
and continue to have those degenerative cartilage changes and ultimately are going to be heading in the direction of needing an intervention such as tracheal stent or a placement of um, luminal, extra luminal rings. I, 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 just, I was thinking before when we talked about um, like the, the lifestyle of maybe the owners of me smoking and I suppose like in, in a city does that have an effect? Like, do, do we know or do you have colleagues who in the country who actually don't really see this that often? Like, is I think there's is, definitely a, a component of airway pollution with that so I, I did my residency training in New York City at the Animal Medical Center and certainly um, you know from a population base we're dealing with a lot of small breed dogs there anyway because you want something that uh, can live in an apartment but we saw a huge number of cases of chronic bronchitis, um, lower airway conditions, and tracheal collapse. Uh, and then when I was dealing with the same dog population in California, um, you know, we still saw it, but it was much, much less. Um, so, and I, I feel like here, certainly in the UK, um, you know, at the RVC, we, we pull patients from kind of all over uh, the south of England. So I think if we were seeing a population of um, small breed dogs coming exclusively from London, where we know we have a lot of air pollution problems, um, I would definitely suspect that we've got a, a, a higher number of, of these affected dogs. It makes you think that maybe in certain other, you know, maybe in places like uh, New Delhi in India, you know, maybe this is actually like a, a really, really big problem, you know, with the amount of pollution that's there. Yeah, and all of the, the heat and there's a yeah. lot of, I've spent some time working in India and certainly there's a lot of purebred dogs um, there that, especially with their extra hair and longer coats, um, you know, they, they see a lot of airway issues as well. Wow. Okay, so, so, uh, um, so when, when do you sort of start to have a conversation sort of with owners about the, uh, the, the sort of the, the, I suppose they're called like sexy alternatives, aren't they? But probably more because people think these are going to fix the issue, right? Exactly. That's the thing. Like it's a one-stop shop, put a stent in, job done. But the reality is, well, well, can you tell me? The Absolutely. Um, certainly the reality for us, that um, all of the interventions that we can do, either um, extraluminal ring placement or tracheal stent, even though stenting is much more minimally invasive and that we don't have to do surgery, they are salvage procedures. Um, so we're not going in that direction until we have fully exhausted all medical options. So um, there's sort of two populations of dogs that we see that are heading in the direction of needing intervention. So um, probably more commonly, we see the patients that have come in through ICU in an acute crisis to the point where we need intubation, sometimes even ventilation to stabilize. And we just think there's no way we're going to actually be able to recover this patient and wake them up without getting a stent in. And certainly for me, the, you know, the number of cases I've seen like that at the RVC since being here in the past two years, haven't really seen any. Um, in New York, we'd have one every two months. So I think, you know, if that's the airway pollution and, uh, you know, factors like that at play could be. Um, the other group of patients that we'll see are these ones that went on medical management, did well for, you know, two, three years maybe, and then the medications are just not working anymore and it's starting to really adversely impact that patient's quality of life to the point where we can't exercise. Um, and for a lot of owners, it becomes something where they can't sleep at night because their dog is just honking and coughing all the time. Um, so those would be the scenarios where we start to have a chat. But unfortunately, most of the time, um, because at least in my experience in the East Coast, the situations where we're seeing these dogs is in the crisis time. So you have to be counseling the owners about making a sort of big decision about placing a stent um, sort of in a in a difficult acute situation so I think it is good when we're first making these diagnoses to have uh, the basic conversation with clients about you know we've diagnosed with tracheal collapse this is a progressive disease 90% of patients will respond to medical management but some of them won't um, so at some point down the line uh, we might be talking about these procedures so it's good for you just to have that in the back of your mind and think about if that's something you'd want to proceed with or not. Um, 
The key also is that tracheal collapse, as you said, it's not a throw the stent in and, you know, go off into the sunset and, you know, we're, we're problem free. Um, the placement of the stent itself will actually create some airway irritation and coughing. So um, there's sort of two populations of dogs that you'll often see from a clinical sign standpoint with tracheal collapse, depending on whether we've got um, extrathoracic cervical collapse happening or intrathoracic. So the extrathoracic dogs are sort of the classic goose honking noise. So basically they try to inspire or breathe in the air we collapses and we create this this sound um, and then if we've got intrathoracic collapse we're getting more of sort of a classic cough so sometimes when we stent these extrathoracic honkers um, we actually you know make the honking go away but then we give them a cough that they didn't have before because the stent is in there and kind of irritating things um, and because over time if you continue to cough with the stent in place it's going to fatigue the metal and ultimately that may cause the stent to fracture it's really important that if you have a stent in the owners need to be very religious about keeping their antitussive therapy up um, because if we have a stent fracture that's uh, you know going to be fairly challenging to deal with so a lot of owners have the conception that you know the stent is going to make the cough go away and that's very much not the case Absolutely. I suppose that there are these sort of quite significant complications, which I suppose is why like, any time I've had sort of discussions with uh, with surgeons about potentially stenting things, they're, they're in the obviously we, they tend to be quite um, uh, reticent or not not quick to jump the gun and normally there's there's a reason when you when you ask a surgeon to do a procedure normally they, they love it right but but these things are, are not not something they want to jump at, up and down and and do so that does make me think there's far more complications that it's not necessarily a, a, a smooth sale or anything like that so so if, the, if these stents if the intraluminal stents do fracture what, what can actually be done about that um, there is a lot we can do, and I think, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about interventional radiology in general, you know, it's a relatively new field in veterinary medicine, so, um, you know, we have real trailblazers like Chick Weiss and Alison Brent who are sort of forging the way, and when we're doing new things, we're going to have unexpected short and long-term complications that come up, but I think when we look at where we started with tracheal st stenting and where we are now, um, the procedure is much more successful and has a drastically lower complication rate, so um, what how things originally started is um, when we're placing stents there's sort of two two basic families that you can put in um, one where we have a stent with it basically you have sort of it loaded on a balloon um, and you physically expand the stent in the patient um, and then another family of stents that are actually sort of self-expandable so they're preloaded on a wire you remove the sort of wire stylet and the stent sort of pops open so when we first started working with uh, you know sort of tracheal collapse stents um, they were this uh, sort of we had to expand type with the balloon um, and we saw a lot of complications with those um, and then actually over time um, there's a company based in California Infinity Medical that worked worked with a number of veterinarians to develop a customized veterinary stent that would help eliminate a lot of these complications. And since the Infinity stents have been launched, they've continued to make further refinements on that. So we now actually have stents that will have differential expansion in the cervical trachea versus the intrathoracic, since one of the problems we have with stent sizing is if the trachea is not all the same size, it becomes very challenging to know which size to use. And usually the cervical trachea is a bit larger. But now we actually have um, the stent duality stent um, that if we can see doing our measurements that we're going to have one of those patients, you just pop one of those in. Um, and I think comfort level with surgeons, you know, the more you've done, uh, the better you feel about it. So certainly I think because we don't have um, happily the large numbers of these dogs coming in in crises here, we haven't had to do as many. But I think the more we do, the, the happier people will get. If we do have a stent fracture, um, the easiest thing to do is just place a second stent right over um, the problem. Once a 
stent has been in place for more than about a week, you physically cannot remove them, so the wire will become incorporated into the mucosal surface. But you can you can sort of layer two or sometimes even three stents over each other um, if you start having a fracture. But the key is if you've had a fracture, figuring out why it happened and was that a problem with the stent being uh, the wrong size or a patient that was just continuing to cough and not being on top of medications. If we can't fix what that original problem was, we're just replacing the stent, you know, it's just going to happen again. And what would be the the reason why people would use sort of extra luminal rings, sort of in 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 your in your experience? Because I know that was a that was a thing, but I, I thought that was partly to do with with cost in uh, um, initially. Yeah, I think you know right now before we had stents uh, available, certainly um, the extra luminal ring prostheses was sort of the only option. We knew though that it was quite an invasive surgery. Um, we could really only place the rings on the cervical trachea, um, and there were a lot of complications with upsetting the blood supply and the nerve supply. So we'd see laryngeal paralysis in about 50% of these patients, and then potentially tracheal necrosis is the most significant complication if we compromise the blood supply. Um, so I think tracheal stenting sort of evolved out of that as an alternative, both to have something less invasive, but also to be able to um, deal with the intrathoracic component of disease. Um, so I think the, the dogma has always been that, you know, if we have a patient that has collapse of both the cervical trachea and the intrathoracic trachea, um, cervical rings wouldn't be able to fix the problem. But there actually was a recent study that um, showed that opening up the, cerv- the cervical trachea did seem to actually help these dogs. And again, as we've refined the surgical technique for placing rings, um, we're seeing lower complication rates as well. So I think it's one of those situations that sort of goes down to your surgical team, what they're most comfortable with, um, and the individual patient. You know, I wouldn't... I. My training, um, we've definitely been very uh, sort of stent focused, but when we look at the literature now, um, I don't think we can definitively say, oh, you know, stents are always superior. If you've got a patient that has, um, you know, a lot of cervical disease, the owners are concerned about having an implant, they're concerned about being able to continually medicate the patient if that's been the limiting factor, rings may be a better option because um, when we've placed um, the luminal rings, usually the cough itself will resolve. So there's less need for that ongoing sort of long term medical anti-tussive therapy um, with the surgical solution. So in conversations like with owners, like what have been the, the, the main uh, issues that they've had either with like medical management or, or surgical management or is it kind of always the, the same? Because I imagine it's a lot to do with the lifestyle of the dog and the dog coughing at night or keeping them up or, or even them concerned about their, their pet and whether they're sleeping as, as well. So there, are there, you know, when you actually start medical or surgical treatment, do that does that sort of go away do they um are they happy with the the way things progress or is it still you know keeping something just a bit at at bay and um actually it doesn't really go away entirely yeah i think for the patients that respond well to medical management um you know most of the time the owners are you know when you can see the results and say oh okay i'm giving all the tablets it's a bit of a pain but you know, the cough is gone and we can go out and exercise and run around the park without sort of having a, a crisis. Um, those owners tend to, to get on board pretty enthusiastically. Um, and then similarly for stenting, I think, you know, if we've had a patient that's been in and out of the ICU three or four times, you know, we've had big crises where we thought we were going to lose them. And then finally, we placed the stent, um, the sort of uh, sort of mental relief from that and the alleviation in the severity of the signs helps. But certainly, you know, you've, you've definitely always got those clients where it, there's going to be logistical challenges. And I think if you've got, you know, the small breed land shark uh, Yorkshire Terrier that's very hard to medicate, um, that might be something where it's really figuring out 
you know, what's the, the biggest hindrance to uh, the treatment plan for this patient and which of those options might be the best. And in that case, then maybe if, if you think it's a candidate for ring placement, then, you know, that might be the way to go. So you said that there's been... Uh... <coughs> You said there's been a lot of improvement um, with certain companies like Infinity, as you said, uh, working out like the, with the with the stents. Have you have you seen any sort of changes or any new things in the uh, um, more in the medical field? Is there anything uh, coming up that might have interest for say like a new antitussives or, or new approach to the medical management, or is it pretty much no? It's business as usual. <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think we always have uh, you know new things coming. I think one of there was a recent paper um, looking at uh, the use of stenozolol uh, anabolic steroid um, in patients with tracheal collapse, and they actually found that it seemed to improve signs and sort of tracheal ring strength um, potentially with the idea that the steroid is um, sort of improving glycosaminoglycan levels. Um, so obviously we have to confirm that with a larger uh, larger study, but I think there are some interesting things to keep people coming to the continuing education on this disease so potentially in a few years we may have some more good treatment options in our arsenal probably as, as well an fda sort of uh, disclaimer with that yes definitely i think the the limitation is going to be uh again same with our controlled drugs yeah. the prescribing yeah. um one thing potentially that uh you know some of our listeners may have also encountered is um you know there's been a lot of anecdotal reports of meropitan or serenia um helping to alleviate coughing um the studies that have been done sort of prospectively trying to look at that haven't been able to document sort of an objective improvement but again subjectively talking to the clients they feel to see you know, they seem to say there's something there. So I think that's another area of research that we still don't have a complete answer for, for what's going on there and why some patients seem to be anecdotally improving. Um, if it's just an effect of you know, reducing inflammation in the airways or if there's something else that um, sort of hitting those receptors is doing, you probably have to stay tuned on that one. Do people use glycaminoglycans uh, uh -huh. as a supplement or anything like that, or is that just...? Um, it has been looked at, but there's been no definitive benefit that has been documented so far but again maybe something that we can look into in future so if we're just going to recap uh, what what i say so, so obviously you'd go most of the time so 90 percent as you said will respond some way to, to medical management and that's really the, the the path to go down and obviously we need to eliminate is there any other bronchial <coughs> disease or pneumonia or any other systemic disease that could affect that and and obesity as as well but like i suppose we, we need to make sure that the medical management is exhausted really before before we, we think about any of the uh, any of the the, the more sort of uh, stenting or, or sort of surgical techniques, or may, maybe we should suggest to owners that they need to uh, get a house in the countryside and uh, <laughs> think some good good clean air helps. And I think probably the biggest thing is just keeping these dogs on the slim side. So you know if you're seeing your three-year-old Yorkie coming in just for a wellness appointment, even if they're not coughing yet. We know this disease shows up in middle-aged to older dogs. Just really start emphasizing to that owner the importance of, you know, keeping our weight low, keeping them on, uh, you know, a strict diet, cutting down on the treats. Because um, I think, as we said, w weight loss um, and weight management for these dogs can make such a huge difference. Mm, absolutely. Um, do you think there's anything else that we sort of uh, missed from uh, from talking about tracheal collapse? Um, I think one point, again, just sort of circling back to the concurrent conditions that can be present, um, you know, we do see uh, fairly high rates of laryngeal paralysis happening in these dogs, and I think it's not on a lot of people's radar because they are small breed. So um, if you've got a patient coming in with a crisis, um, you know, you need to temporarily intubate, um, we want to always be thinking to do a complete laryngeal exam at the time to look for things like concurrent laryngeal paralysis as well as laryngeal collapse. As again, we may have brachycephalic airway disease uh, as a component with these guys and just that constant um, sort of 
excessive negative um, inspiratory pressures that we need to generate if we've got intrathoracic collapse can really sort of create problems. So just making sure to do that full assessment and look at every aspect of the respiratory system when they come in. Excellent. Well, um, we'll wrap it up there. And thank you so much for your time uh, today, uh, Sarah. Um, and many thanks for your time for, for, for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device. And that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you can leave us a five-star review, um, that would be great. Don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or any other friends. And we'll place any show notes on the RVC pages. So just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.